HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. This is a weekly podcast that brings you the news from the world of food and inspiration from amazing women in this fantastic industry. Today, my guest is a very, very successful restaurateur whose early jobs included waitressing at the age of 16, wearing a plastic dress, nurse's shoes, and a hairnet. We're going to hear more from her in a moment. But first, I'm going to tell you about what I had for breakfast today. It was donuts. It wasn't one donut. It wasn't two donuts. But it was six extraordinary donuts from Wiley Dufresne's new shop, Do's Donuts. I love that because they're also going to have a don'ts donuts. So there's so much you can do with the word do. And you can also make great cake donuts, which is what Wiley is doing. So what did I have? I had the cinnamon, which was the simplest. I had banana crunch. Now, you have to imagine that you're in Brooklyn. The space is clean and bright, big windows. And there's donuts that are about, I don't know, six inches apart. One perfect donut of each variety so that you can see it and you can dream about what it's going to taste like. And then you get a warm donut. My first bite was strawberries and cream, which was crystally strawberry flavor on top of a warm cake donut that just, when you bite into it, you just have that essence of cake and the tartness of the strawberries. And you think, this is really good. I have to have some more, but let me try another flavor. And I paired it. You know, you can have a morning pairing. Um, I paired it with milk, coffee milk, which is really like liquid coffee ice cream. So I started my day hyped up on sugar and essentially started 
with dessert. And that brings me to big gay ice cream. You know, perhaps that seems like a, a leap, but I started with breakfast and I'm going to continue with the notion of ice cream because recently I had delivered to my apartment six pints of big gay ice cream. Now, you're probably familiar with them maybe from the truck, which is where I first met um, Doug, Doug and Brian. They had a truck and they had this vision of a soft serve, just upgrading it, making it more fun. And fun it was. I mean, unicorn sprinkles, um, pretzels covered with chocolate, globs, salty caramel, salty pimp, salty nicknames, salty names like the Dorothy. The names were a bit over my head. But when I got the pints at home, I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm going to have the soft serve heaven translated into a pint that I get to have at home. So today, Doug, are you there? Yeah, I'm, I'm about to put a cough drop in my mouth. Can you bear with me for one second? <laughs> I can. There. Um, that <laughs> donut porn lead-in was damn. Yeah, but what about the ice cream porn lead-in? Because, you know, the salty pimp, that the dolce de leche, the salt, the covered in chocolate, the when you mix it all together and you pack it into a pint. I mean, there must have been some challenges going from soft serve to... Do you call it hard serve? I mean, for you, I even hate to use the word hard serve because I don't even know what you would do with that. But um, Yeah, that, that's usually it, or hard-packed ice cream. Uh-huh. The, the funny thing is that people think soft serve is some other beast unto itself when soft serve is exactly the same as hard ice cream. It's just frozen differently. Um, it's frozen right you know, on the spot. And it has a little lower, little lower fat content. Um, other than that, it's exactly the same stuff. But yeah, you know, we never, <laughs> we never thought we were going to last the first summer of the ice cream truck. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the whole thing was done with this spirit of let's go out and do a summer job and, you know, let's just do it our way, um, which we believe is going to be the right way. We, we thought it would have, you know, impact. Um, but did but you, we, when, when you began, did you think sorry. that there was, did, when you began, did you feel that there was an entire lifestyle that you could build around the notion of ice cream? Because I feel like that's what you've done. You know, I was a classical bassoonist, and one of the reasons we decided to do Big Gay Ice Cream Truck in 2009 um, is because I had just finished my comprehensive exams for my PhD at uh, CUNY. And I wanted to do something that was completely, you know, the other end of the spectrum. I didn't want to have to study. I didn't want to have to, you know, work on my French phrases. <laughs> I didn't want to have to work on my Mozart bibliography. I wanted to do something that was really, really New York. I'd never had a good summer job because, you know, every summer I went to music camp or did something like that. So I started trolling Craigslist for things um, that were just really New York. I didn't want to work, you know, at Barnes and Noble. I wanted to work <laughs> in the subway. I wanted to like sit in the middle of the tunnel between 125th and 59th Street on the A tunnel and, you know, shoot rats with a 22 or work with an exterminator or something like that. And um, boy, that is definitely like the dark side of uh, what New York means. <laughs> so, 
You know, the opportunity to have an ice cream truck came about, and it was just a timeshare thing. I didn't have to really do anything. I just showed up. I didn't know you Um, could have a timeshare in an ice cream truck. You know, like Florida, California, yes, ice cream truck? Well, the story is they're sort of like um, the, the licenses that go on an ice cream truck or in any food truck. You can sort of think of them as a commodity, like a, um, a taxi um, medallion. 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 So there are guys who buy up these um, uh, licenses, which technically isn't legal. They're not really buying them. They're sort of renting them from the original owners. Hmm. Um, but they, you know, the guys that I worked with... Uh, there were about four of them, and they each had about ten Mr. Softy trucks. And as the trucks decayed, and the trucks were never great to start with, but <laughs> as they as they aged, they stopped, you know, putting the Mr. Softy branding on them uh, because you know that's a franchise fee. It was better used for better trucks. So they let me take the biggest shit box they had and turn it into Big Gay Ice Cream Truck. And that's why the first summer was so fraught with mechanical difficulties. You know, the reason I really learned to use Twitter was to tell people that I didn't have chocolate ice cream working that day. <laughs> that's funny. And- yeah. And then the, I met you, I think, at the end of the first summer at Carts in the Park. When exactly. When introduced us. At the Aventi Hotel uh, during yeah. New York City Wine and Food. And, and, and there you were with your awesome mixings. Like, how did you come up with the ideas that were, you know, became part of your signature? Well, you know, a couple of the things we had sort of in our in our repertoire going into the truck. Like Brian, I remember, had eaten at, uh, what's the pizzeria in uh, Mendocino? Pizzeria Pico, I think it is, um, where they serve vanilla soft serve with really good olive oil on it. Uh-huh. So one of the first things we did um, in our little home test kitchen was to get a bunch of vanilla ice cream, fluff it up, and then try a bunch of olive oils on it. It was really, really fun. Um, I knew that I wanted wasabi peas on vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream. And I also know that I wanted sriracha on chocolate because I can't eat anything spicy, Uh quote-unquote. And eating it on ice cream gave me the opportunity to actually enjoy that stuff. Of course, all that creaminess cutting the heat. We had a bunch of single items to put on ice cream. And... Eventually, after we were on the truck playing around for a while, we started coming up with real cones like B. Arthur and Salty Pim. And um, those are what the, what's the mainstay of our shops. All the stuff was mostly developed on the truck that, that is uh, sold in the shops now. And then, so, and, and now you're a completely new adventure with a hard packed ice cream did that take a lot of experimentation just to make sure that things didn't get soggy or you know that you had flavors going all the way through because you really took something where the outside was the surface to something Mm -hmm. where the in you know it was integrated inside the ice cream itself yeah you know i I will say though when we started the salty temp i you know i've been injecting saucer vanilla with dulce de leche for years now (laughs) So, and also we do American globs where we bash pretzels into the soft serve and then sort of remake the whole thing. Got it. So I think we really, we really took soft serve to the sort of um, logical end of the amount of abuse it can take. <laughs> and, and at that time, we started working on our book. So, you know, translating 
the uh, the cones to hard ice cream, uh, the book was a really great primer in how to do that. And I also took wait, but and why why was that? Um, because I love your book, to, by the way. Brian and I had to yeah, Brian and I had to think through how best to translate you know the soft serve oh, cones into some sort of home version. Yeah. I mean, I just want to pause for a second to say that anyone who's listening who does not have this book, it is, it reinvents sort of the cookbook because of the way it looks and the energy and the people that you have throughout it. In addition to giving a home cook access to some really great ice cream, it's so it's terrific. It was very very daunting to write that book. You know, um, Brian did most of the. Um, uh, spoken word stuff. I did most of the recipes and sending them out to be tested by real people. Like Catchy Guy Hamilton did a few, um, Rebecca Mason from Scruff in Houston. And to get their feedback, and, and even still, when I see reviews of the book and the recipes work, I'm still <laughs> kind of astounded. <laughs> yeah. It was a real crash course those first two years in how to make ice cream and what ice cream consists of. Right. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, that I really don't have any problem when I don't know something, just owning right up to it. So, you know, when you don't know something about ice cream or pastry and you can call Johnny Uzzini, which is, you know, a, a great, great asset, and say, Johnny, I have no idea what I'm doing. Please teach me. And, right. and Johnny, for those of you who don't know, was the um, pastry chef at uh, Jean-Georges, the flagship of Jean-Georges von Richten for years. And he's one of this country's most extraordinary pastry chefs. So, yeah, you have some very high-class help. And meticulous and, you know, he knows all the rules. And that's what I needed to know. So, Right, because you're really good yeah. at the breaking them part. <laughs> What and was that? I said you were good at breaking all the rules, so it's good to know them first. Yeah, I had to learn how to assemble ice cream. So I actually went to a, a couple of university, um, like, four-day courses in how to scale it up to mass production. Um, you know, I, I had a couple of friends at different plants that helped me out. Um, I actually had a friend in the test kitchen at Ben & Jerry's who <laughs> taught me some things. That's a good mold um, to have. Yeah, it really is. And um, so when it came time to this, to do this, I mocked up all of the pints, basically finished versions. I made about um, probably 40 or 50 of, of each flavor, and I sent them off to be mass-produced. Uh-huh. And then, then Brian and I went in and did several rounds of tasting. And without... Exception, everything came out better than when I started with it, which, you know, when, when you're considering going to, to mass production like that, you think you're going to lose something. But most of them only gained. That, you know. that is a, a compliment to you, the people you chose as partners and I suppose to the, the strength of the original idea that it could be um, improved upon and, and still very much itself. I'm, I have one last question. Uh, one of the okay. things that I love about um, the pints is the packaging and the graphics yeah. for Big Gay are so strong and they're um, such an integral part of the brand. How did you, mm-hmm. did you work on that yourself or did you have a great team working with you on that? You know, the very, very start of the business, I, I started a Facebook group to sort of get my friends in on the joke 
Uh-huh. And I call I called my Facebook group Big Gay Ice Cream Truck because that's just what it sounded like. And we had no idea that that was becoming, going to become our brand name. Wow. Um, we, we kept it just because it, it was attracting people to the group. Um, you know, being a fan of Big Gay Ice Cream Truck was showing up in people's Facebook feeds. And it was sort of like being a fan of unicorns or whatever. <laughs> and... And an old boyfriend of Brian's, who is a genius graphic designer named Jason O'Malley, um, said, you need a logo. I'm going to make an ice cream cone logo for you. And within two revisions, we had the logo that would, you know, uh, it, that's what made us that first summer by its virility on social media. Because if people didn't stop to buy something, they would still stop in front of the logo and put it on Facebook or put it on Twitter. Um, I think there's something funny here because it's really it's probably virality like it goes viral but virility because it's masculine I kind of like that you've got a double there I didn't really think of that but I hope I don't have any viruses yeah anyhow I'm very viral you're very viral and the brand is viral and viral Jason's Jason's look has sort of permeated our brand you know he we we worked with a designer on the book that Random House selected for us and even they admitted we just got to bring in jason you know Mm -hmm. there there was no way around it he he is the look of big gay ice cream that's that's great so i now want people to go out and look for big gay ice cream in Mm -hmm. your local retailer you can also buy it online um doug do you want to is is it on amazon online uh, the easiest version is to go to biggayicecream.com and then pick where to buy it. That will give you a, a fairly up-to-date list of the retailers that have it, which are mostly Manhattan, Queens, Bronx, and Long Island right now. We also have it at our three shops, four shops, um, West Village, East Village, Meatpacking, and Philly. And you can buy it not only on Fresh Direct, but on a service called Amazon Fresh, which is in quite a few major markets, including most of the California cities and up in Seattle. So all that, all that linkage is there, and uh, it works. I can, I can promise you that <laughs> ordering ice cream online actually works. That's awesome. Doug, it's great talking to you. And, uh, Thank you so much. Thanks for that indulgent box that you sent along. Six, six <laughs> pints? We sent you six pints? Yeah, you did. Did you mean okay, to send me more? Back, did you mean to send me more? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for right. everything, Dana. Right. Oh, Talk to you. Bye. Some, pe- some people are so friggin' good to us, and you're one of them. <laughs> Love you. Bye-bye. Great. Have a great day. So that is the story of Big Gay Ice Cream. Some of the, I, I knew a lot, but I just learned a lot right then from Doug and uh my favorite flavor is Salty Pimp, if you need to choose one and you want to choose the one that I like the best. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, I'll be talking to Vicki Freeman, a restaurateur whose career took an interesting turn when she was working with Ralph Lauren. Stay with us to learn more. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients, food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature, food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, 
which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Hi, this is Dana Cowan. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I am here with Vicki Freeman, an extraordinary restaurateur in New York City. She co-owns several restaurants with her husband, Mark Meyer. I have been and loved each of the, been to and loved each of these. Maybe you know Cook Shop in Chelsea, or maybe 100 Acres, or Vicks, or Rosie's. They are all restaurants that you need to check out and try, and you're going to want to when you hear more from one of the brilliant people behind them. So, Vicki, we both grew up in New York City, and I have to say, I think you had a lot more freedom and a lot more fun than I did growing up, and probably our our limits uh, met in the middle. I grew up uptown and really barely made it downtown, and you grew up downtown. I don't know how far you got, but being a New Yorker and having some freedom seems like it set you on this wonderful food path. Can you tell us a little about your childhood in New York and your food life here? Yes, absolutely. I grew up in the West Village on 13th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. And I really do feel, I say to this day, I feel like the luckiest person in the world for getting to grow up there. And I am always, if I didn't grow up there, I don't know that I'd be who I am. And if I didn't have the freedom I had, i I'm scared of what I would have been because <laughs> I did need all of that freedom. What would have happened if you didn't have the freedom? I think I just would have rebelled. Right. Much better to have the freedom it's, and move forward. It is. Um, but it was my parents also, my parents got divorced when I was very young, but both sides were really interested in food. And we grew up next to Mario's restaurant, which was this incredible sort of old school Italian restaurant, which was like our second kitchen and I just loved it. And I, from such an early age, I loved going out to eat, really much more than staying in. Uh-huh. I loved going out. And we would go to Chinese and, you know, every different ethnic you know, thing to eat. And yeah. it was amazing. And, um, and you lived, and Balducci's must have been right across the street from you. Yeah, it was right. It was on 6th Avenue. It was where Jefferson Market Library is. It was right over there. And, yes, my... I really always say this. My start to being really passionately interested in food was that, was Balducci's. I would go and first I went with my mother and we would taste cheese. And eventually they let me go and taste cheese. And I was really, I was eight years old. And I would go. What an adorable image, this eight-year-old girl just tasting cheese. Did you buy some too? Yes. I would I, I would save my allowance and that's what I would spend my some chocolate, but I would spend my allowance on cheese and they, you know, I got to give it to them from my memory. They were really good to me and they let me go in there and they tasted me on all these different things and I was serious about it. Like at a very ridiculously young age, it sounds obnoxious, but I hope it wasn't, but I knew good mozzarella from bad fresh mozzarella and you know, stuff like that. And I think that now today there's probably a lot of eight-year-olds who are like, of course, you know, but back then, no, like there were no eight-year-olds, you know, going to (laughs) Balducci's and and tasting cheese. Like I can vouch for that. (laughs) There are probably some, but yes, now it's much more prevalent. Right. And, and then 
you moved from New York to California, and you had a very different food life and experience there. Very different. It was That was a very difficult move for me. I did not want to go. I was very happy, you know, in West Village of Manhattan. I did not want to go to California, and I fought it, but I went. And yes, I was... <laughs> I went to California, and I definitely found it's so great now, but it was a different food scene then, especially I lived in Los Angeles first, and so it was drastically different. And so how did you decide to get a waitressing job at 16 in L.A.? That seems ambitious. You know, I think I was always fairly entrepreneurial. Uh-huh. You know, at like 10, 11, and 12, I had a babysitting monopoly in downtown New York, and I always <laughs> liked things that I felt I could have a part of the outcome. And waitressing to me was very entrepreneurial. And for some reason, I saw that there was a job available at Bob's Big Boy in Encino, California. And I'm not sure why, but I decided at 16 to go for that job. <laughs> could you walk there? Oh, no. Could, at 16, you could drive. I could drive. But you're you can't a New walk. Yorker. Like, did you, how'd you learn how to drive? I didn't learn how to drive until I was like over 50. So, I learned to drive because we moved to California. Yeah. And here's the terrible truth. Yes. I learned to drive. I hated driving. I got into five accidents in my first year. <laughs> I will have to say none of them are my fault, but it, I hated driving. <laughs> I was used to just walking everywhere. And my license expired when I was 20, and I've never gotten another <laughs> <laughs> I can obviously really relate to that. But you drove yourself to... The restaurant. Yes. And what was that like? I mean, that couldn't have been anything like what you'd experienced in New York. No. It was the craziest experience because, first of all, we had to wear an unbelievable uniform. I had to wear nurse's shoes, flat, like ugly nurse's shoes, a plastic dress, and a hairpiece. But but why was that? Like, did they think that was sexy? Like, is it... No, I think I they know. thought it was cool diner wear. I see. But it didn't look like cool diner wear. Sounds like they didn't need to wash it, so maybe they would save some money on the laundry. I don't know. I don't know. Exactly. And I washed my wig in the washing machine and dryer, so eventually it was green and sort of this hideous color. <laughs> Not pretty. And what about the people you were waitressing with? Like, were they a good crew? You know, I adored them, but they were... <laughs> They were another different education, uh-huh. and I always say there was this. There were two waitresses, Connie and Sherry, and they were just trashy in the best <laughs> sense of the way. And they would tell me stories that at my sort of I didn't know that I was innocent at sixteen, but yeah. I guess that I was. So the stories they would tell me, I'd be like, "Oh my god!" And the things they would say, I, just, I mean, tell me like what kind of things? I don't think I can say it. <laughs> you're you're like, going to blush here. Yeah, I don't know if I can even say it on radio, but you know, all their sort of sexual ex. ex- Escapades and wow. like they would they would build giant penises in the ice that we use for drinks. So I would go get ice, and there would be like this. Like, but I was just fascinated by them, and I really liked them, and they were great. They had so much like oomph and spirit in them. It's a lot of joie de vivre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you came back to New York to go to. Did you come back to go to school? Well, I came back. I went to San Francisco after that for a couple of years. Long story short, but my stepfather who raised me had passed away, and I didn't want to be that far away from my mom and my brother. But as soon as I could, at 19, I moved back home. I mean, back home. Back to New York, which is back home. <laughs> and it probably felt like home the entire time that you were in sunny California. Yes, I couldn't wait to come back. Truthfully, I don't know. I, and I look, I really, to this day, like San Francisco and like Los Angeles. It just didn't feel like a fit to me. Yeah. And so, and when you came at 19, uh, was it uh, a, for school or? Yes. I came, 
I have gone to many, many schools. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And so, do you have a number? Like, because you, you know the number of car crashes. Do you know the number of eight uh, colleges? Eight colleges. Yes. How do you even pull off eight colleges? Like, how does one go to eight colleges? Well, I had I went to, I went to Pierce Community College. Um, I had gotten into all these great schools, but my stepfather died, and I they, I couldn't leave. Yeah. So I all of a sudden was home in Los Angeles and couldn't leave and had to figure out what I was going to do. So I went to community college for one semester just to stay where I was and at least get somewhere, you know, get some credits. So I did that. Moved to San Francisco, went to San Francisco State um, University for child psychology, and at the same time went to the Academy of Art College for photography. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So did both of those. I mean, I could go, I'm not going to bore you, but I went to film at NYU and I got... A two-year, a two-year um, film, whatever you call it, like certificate. But I, was, I guess what we can take away from this is you did not have a direction at that age, but you had a lot of drive. I, had, you, you right. know, I mean, just getting into eight school sounds like a lot to me. No, and I went to Columbia for art history. But I always say I try to tell the people that work for me, the younger ones, like at least I was looking. You know, yeah. I was directionless. I was constantly, but the whole time I was working in restaurants. But I worked. My first feature film I worked, I was like, okay, film's not for me. Because it worked. It's so slow going. You know, I mean, everything was like start and stop, start and stop. I worked in a gallery for a week, and I was like, oh, absolutely not. Like, oh, my goodness, one week. That was it. One week. And they were. it took a lot to get that job, and I quit after a week. I was like, I can't work in a gallery. And I guess that the part of it is that the whole time that I was looking and looking and looking, it was already there. I was already doing it. You know, right. it was already, and I loved waitressing. Yeah. I have to say, I believe very firmly in the notion that your path is inside of you and it just takes either listening or someone, you know, like going in search of it with you to find out what that is. Because I believe that everyone has a direction is just, it is not always as obvious or maybe you ignore it because it doesn't seem like the right thing. Like you loved waitressing. You found it entrepreneurial. Um, and you know you don't want to grow up to be necessarily a waitress, but it's a, a start of a path. So, and tell me about when you uh, began working for, for Ralph. That seems like such an interesting place to work. It was, it was amazing. But I had a friend who would go in and basically during their buying weeks, she would order in lunch for all the different buyers that were coming. And I was one of the waitresses. She hired me as a waitress to go in and take coffee orders and bring them their sandwich and take their orders and all of that. And and then you decided that food was not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> to this day, I don't think I've ever been this brave or done anything this crazy in my life. But I was 19, and I just didn't think what they were doing. I thought the food quality wasn't good. I thought the choices weren't good. It was very expensive. So I went to Ralph Lauren and this guy named Peter Strom, who was Ralph's partner, and I said, really, I think I can do this better. I don't think they knew I was 19 at the time. (laughs) But that was pretty ballsy. So um, do you have any thought, like, how you came to that? Like, I just have the confidence. I'm going to go talk to them. You know, I don't because I wasn't even cooking. I mean, it wasn't like, I don't know, it wasn't like I was a chef or I had any cooking experience whatsoever. (laughs) But I saw what they were doing, and I had grown up in this world, and my mom was a great cook, and, my, you know, I'd seen all this, so I just thought, I don't know, really, to this, I'm telling you, to this day, I don't know yeah. where I got that burst of confidence, but I knew that I could do it. I knew I could do it better. 
And apparently you did, because this is a gig you had for 10 years. Yeah, they gave me a week. They said, we'll give you a week week to see how you did it. And I did it with my friend who was working there. I said, we can do this. And after a week, they were like, you're on. This is so much better. And I ended up working for them for 10 years. And they were incredible. They were just the greatest people to work for. It was a great job. You know, they were, they paid me well. I had lots of freedom. It was great. And also, there's, how many buying weeks are there a year? Did you continue to just do the buying week? I did, but I also, they, I also did some special events for them Uh and that kind of thing. I did all their men's buying weeks and a couple of special events. And I Move with them from this tiny office to 650 Madison Avenue, which oh, is that's gorgeous. Such a and, location. you know, it was just sort of that kind of thing. But while I was doing that for them, I started a catering company, which really, again, was, I don't know, because I'm sitting here telling you I don't know why, how made me think I could do that. But I also got very lucky and I ended up getting hooked up with Sony Music. Huh. So I did catering for the craziest things. I did catering for. Michael Jackson. I did a party for my, with Michael Jackson, Celine Dion, White Snake. I, t- I did this party with White Snake, and there were so many smoke machines that you couldn't see the food. <laughs> oh, no. So I, like all we were doing was like foods over here. We were trying to shine lights and you know fan away all the smoke and you know and my. My party I did with Michael Jackson. Yes, we never got to. Every, I met everybody else. I yes. met Celine. I worked with all of them, but not him. Huh. He ours were all like um, phone conversations. And during the party, wait a minute. So you got to speak to Michael Jackson. Hey, Michael, what would you like to eat at your party? Well, yeah. I mean, with someone from Sony, it yeah, wasn't yeah, like but still. That's hopefully, cool. I wasn't like, hey, Michael, how's it hanging? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, but he never came to the party. He huh? sat in a room above the party and like looked out and I never saw him wow so I did a party with Michael Jackson without doing a party with Michael Jackson right well, you, he was present he was present in so many ways hmm. and then you moved on from catering at a super young age right to um, start your own restaurant with a partner yes um, I opened Vix. I mean, uh, yeah, Vix. It was, oh, it was Vix. <laughs> it was in. It was Vix. In it was first rendition of Vix, and it was in Soho in 1993. And I can imagine, like, just draw a picture, like, for everybody of what Soho was like in 1993, because it was a bit different, no? Yeah, you know what? I know this is gonna whatever make me show my age and make me sound nostalgic, but I don't think there's ever been anything in in Manhattan like what Soho was when I left Soho, you know, it was galleries and there were wine bars and there was like, Come des Garçons had its first store there with one white shirt Wow! That in this massive space. And I was like, I just couldn't even understand it. You know, I was like, how can you do that? But it was, that's cool. Yeah, it was cool. It was really cool and very, I don't know. I just loved it. And then you had a very special space, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. We'll call it special. Yeah. It was it was a pretty much underground space. It was on Broom Street, and it was probably three-quarters of the way underground. Oh, my goodness. And I will give this to my partner at the time, but we had filled it with all this sort of mismatched old silverware and furniture and everything. And I also hired a super cute chef, um, <laughs> which is how I met my husband, Mark Meyer. So I hired- He was the... Just to be clear, he was the super cute chef. Yeah. <laughs> so he was the chef of that little... I don't know. It was probably a 60-seat restaurant that we sometimes cram 90 people into. Wow. But the f- great... I mean, it was just a special little place to me. 
and it was so ahead of its time, really, with the the design. The design was with the mismatch, which you know now people do. Of it feels like, of course, right. But back then, to break up a china set, you know, right. to, would be crazy. And um, and what type of food were you doing? What was Mark doing? He was doing American Mediterranean. Uh huh. You know, very sort of rustic fit. It fit the way the place looked. It was really. I mean, he was way more talented and successful to, than to be there, but he saw something in it, the charm, and... And you. Well, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was... It was... I don't know. It was just a special moment, and really, truthfully, I don't think I was prepared for it. I didn't really know what I was doing. We opened it to be a coffee bar, because mm-hmm. it used to be owned by Suzanne Vega, and, you know, that's what it was supposed to be. And then somehow in the middle of all of it, my partner said, let's do a restaurant. And me going, you can see I have a little bit of this habit of going, <laughs> okay, I'll do something I'm totally unprepared for. Right. In this case, it didn't work out as well as it could have worked <laughs> out. But it was an incredible experience. And I don't know why this day, but it, it was filled, filled with celebrities that I don't know why wanted to come. And it wasn't because you had a publicist and it wasn't because, no, just they were there. And somehow they found out about it. I don't know how. I think the fact that it was kind of underground actually was its appeal, you know, right. and we were kind of children and like it would be, you know, someone call up and go, Julia Roberts and Meg Ryan want to come and eat lunch. And I was like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, and I didn't, you know, it was just this crazy little moment in time. And the way it was set up is that you would see people's feet first because they were coming down the stairs and then it would raise up to their face and there was times where like we were just sitting there and all of a sudden I would be like hitting my partner like it's Johnny Depp it's Johnny Depp you know like hitting her and I was like and we just we we were so unprepared for all of this is there anything I mean you you did it it was successful but when you say you were not prepared in what way do you feel like you should have been prepared or what do you know now that you if you were going to tell that younger self, oh my God, if you'd only done, it would have been you know, better. I think the biggest thing is I was unwilling to do, not maybe unwilling is not the right word, but yes, I was unwilling to do the work I should have done. Really, I tell everybody this, you know, I get, I should have gone to work for Danny Myers. <laughs> I should have, you know, yeah. or someone of his ilk and learned, you know what I mean? That made that my school, right. you know what I mean? This opportunity came up and I did it. Right. But I don't even think I knew what food cost was. You know what I mean? I didn't know right. what I was doing. And I, I knew I could make a fun, good place with good food. I didn't know the business side at all. Right. And now I get, I can't tell you how many people come to me with their proposals. And I'm gonna, I want to open a restaurant. What should I do? Advice. And I think they always leave help hating me because I say, <laughs> go work for Danny Meyer. Really? I do. Just get some training. Get some tra- If they had none. I mean, this is right. not people who've been in the business. But this is like the banker or the whatever that comes to me. Right. And I'm always like... Get, you know, get some good training. And you also probably get some good legal advice, right? Because the the restaurant had a, a swift and unfortunate demise. Yeah, it was such a, try to tell this quickly, but some very famous restaurateurs offered my partner to basically buy me out, take the space, and they wanted to do a restaurant there. And he saw that we were making not as much as we should because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> And, you know, wanted to. And I said, no. You know, he brought it up. It's sort of I found out about it. He, I confronted him. And he said, yeah, I want to sell the restaurant. I was like, no. Because I had nothing else to do. And no, you know, <laughs> at this point, not really an education. I was like, no, this is what I do. You know, right. and he called the New York Times. 
and told them we were closing. And I read about it sitting in Dean DeLuca coffee shop at the time on Prince Street that it's the New York Times said we were story. closing. It's horrible. Um, and, but all, uh, clearly all turned out well. Um, but it, you went through a hard time. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit and how you then picked yourself up? And Yeah, I definitely went through a hard time. I would actually say that I was clinically depressed. No, I went... Because it all sort of happened around me, and I I just, I mean, knowing nothing, you know, suddenly one day my restaurant was done. I had purveyors calling me and, break, you know, threatening literally to break my kneecaps. And, like, it was just such, from all of this to that, you know, it was really crazy. And for four months, I just did not work. I went on unemployment, and I used to be like, I'll never go on unemployment. I went on unemployment, went to the movies, ate you know, I was with Mark at the time, so he cooked me a lot of really good pasta. Yay, Mark. Yeah, thank God for that. <laughs> um, and I really did nothing for four months. And then, uh, but then you ended up working at ARC. I did. So four months in, Jonathan Waxman, uh, who is like my brother, who I love to death, um, came to me and basically said, okay, enough of this. <laughs> because you've, for him. You've wallowed in this long enough and you need to go to work. And I was like, oh, I'm not ready to go to work. And, you know, I had all this pride, too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so now what am I going to do? Go waitress again right. or go be a manager in someone else's restaurant and, like, right. see all of our customers? And, you know, I had a lot of ego invested in this, yeah. sort of. Of course. So, anyway, long story short, he was doing a bakery on the Upper West Side um, called Columbus Bakery. He had worked for ARC. He was, he was the executive chef of ARC. And Mark had left the restaurant and was working with Jonathan as one of the executive chefs of ARC. So they were opening a bakery on Columbus Avenue on the Upper West Side. Where was it? Columbus in what? 83rd Street. Huh. I feel like I must have been there. Um, so that that was great. And I feel like that that obviously gave you some of that training that you had been missing that set you up so well for your business, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But first, I would love to talk about some a, a quote that has inspired you or words that you'd like to share with the listeners. Yeah, I have used this quote to many of my managers and to some staff meetings that we had because it just means so much to me. But it's from Maya Angelou, and it says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how it made them feel. And why is that particularly resonant for you? Because I think in restaurants, mm -hmm. it is not just that you got the perfect cooked steak or the, you know, which of course you have to have these things. But I think like there's so many times where I have heard people say, oh my God, I went to that restaurant. I loved it. You know, what do you have? Uh, I can't even remember. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's, it's so much, I think restaurants, I've always felt as a restaurant that it's a community that I wanted restaurants to be that place at the end of a hard day, the end of a hard week, or even if to, to celebrate or anything, that you go into and you get that feeling. You get something. And let's talk about your amazing restaurants today. So you started with Five Points? I did. Which I, I remember when it opened, it was just, it was um, in such a great location and the, it was so delicious. Um, so how did Five Points come about? Well... Five points. I, had, I was working at Columbus Bakery, and I told them I'd be there for four months. Then four, four years later. You kept them there for Right. I had been looking at spaces, looking at spaces, looking at spaces. And my architect at the time 
lived above five, the space of Five Points, came to me and said, you know, I have this great space. I can make it great. It had been a trucking garage for 30 years. It had never been anything. Wow. I never knew that. Yeah. And it was the Astor Stables before that. Ooh. It still had dirt on the back of the restaurant. It never had anything but dirt. I remember there was such a beautiful story about being called Five Points, right? Because that was what the area... Right. There was a gang was called, called the Five Points Gang. The area's a little bit it. south, but there was a gang called the Five Points Gang, and they had their clubhouse here. Oh, goodness. And um, the empire that you've built, it, it seems like there's a link um, in the, the cooking genetics of the places, do you want to just talk about like how you arrived at, at that food philosophy? First of all, thanks for calling my little thing an empire. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it really comes from Mark. And, you know, long before there was ever the words and the thought, the whole time we had five points, it was for, I never know a better word, better use, you know, better word for this, but it was farm to table. And Mark was obsessed of where things came from and going to farms and talking to farmers. And really, really, that was his aesthetic and his, you know, it was really, but we didn't scream it from the rafters because nobody knew. And I will say, he was the start of like, I want lamb chops. And we had lamb tastings because we were using animals and whole animals and there was not enough lamb chops. And we got a lot of flack for that in the beginning. They're like, well, I don't want the leg and the sausage and you know I want lamb chops you know and it was I remember when it started to turn around and it was really when we did cook shop that people Mm -hmm. got it more that we weren't trying to be difficult or we weren't you know I mean or they wanted you know there was a long time where I think maybe the whole time we didn't have tomatoes for the burger Uh in the winter when there weren't tomatoes and people were just like what do you mean you know tomatoes you know I mean like it was you know and it was trying to explain to them this is not just like for fluff or we don't want to have tomato or, you know, it's not random in this thought process. Right. It's, um, it's very true. And it's also true for hundred acres. Um, it is so true to that food. Right. I mean, the, the place. right. And all the restaurants, you know, all the restaurants have carried that out. The funny story is when we opened cook shop where we became really known for the farm to table and all this kind of stuff, we had this huge blackboard, which is still there to this day. And it was, opening day and we were going to put the wines on it and we were going to put I don't know some liquor and some we had this whole plan but we completely ran out of time oh, and no. Mark said and we were opening we were frantic and Mark said why don't we just list the farmers you know wow. and I said oh yeah okay that'll be easy you know, not thinking <laughs> whatever so we just listed the farmers and I cannot tell you what a reaction we got over that and it was like half the press pictures were of our blackboard and listing the farmers and you know and I would like to say that it was planned, but it was, you know. I, I like how sometimes the thing that is so true comes out effortlessly and then becomes a signature. You know, you, you don't know what that thing is, but it's so real that people can feel that authenticity. And now um, tell me about Rosie's, which is one of the newest. I got to say, I just, <laughs> I don't know if this is a good thing to say, but I love Rosie's. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a restaurant that makes me happy. Um, it That came from Mark's passion for Mexican food and Mexico and all things Mexico. The fact that we don't live there is like probably because of me, because I like New York, but he really does love it. And for years, I mean, as many years as I can remember, 
He's been going, going a few times a year, going with our Mexican cooks, our Mexican chefs. Like it was not, I always say this about us for better and for worse. Like we'll never sit in a room and go, we should have a Mexican restaurant, you know, or they make a lot of money or we should, you know, do a Chinese concept or, a, you know, it usually comes from, I hope, something more organic than that. Yeah. And this really was, he had studied it, he had cooked it, he has like done, you know, whole pigs in someone's you know, yard where they didn't even barely have electricity and, you know, really just the flavors, you know, of it. He did an eight-day boot camp with Diana Kennedy. Oh, my gosh. That's... uh, Diana Kennedy is... um, lives in Mexico, and she is a... I mean, in my view, she's a goddess. In mine, too. Of Mexican cooking. I mean, she really... She's very particular, and she's exceptionally knowledgeable and very articulate and getting an hour with her would be amazing the idea of getting eight days is beyond and she's come she wasn't here when Rosie's but she's come twice to Vicks and it might have been the first time she came was maybe the most nervous I've ever been to the point where she said um, I want to have dinner and I didn't know she meant with us or uh-huh. not with us so Mark and I are standing there she's like are you going to sit down and, we're like, and I kind of was like I wasn't sure we were having dinner with her she goes well I didn't come here and have dinner by myself and if you know her that's that's her. That's her. But anyway, all that led to doing Rosie's. Wow. Well, um, I feel like that brings us a little bit up to date. And I would love to know, going all the way back, because you have such great um, food knowledge and, and restaurant knowledge, because you loved going out when you were a little kid. Are there any restaurants that have stood the test of time that you just love that would you'd like to throw out for listeners to know about that that still exist? Yes, there's a few. Um, One is actually Russ and Daughters. And I know it's not the restaurant, you know what I mean? But I've been going to Russ and Daughters since I was a kid and fascinated with watching them slice the salmon. And like, there was something about the men in the white coats and how seriously they took the business of salmon slicing, you know, smoked salmon slicing that. And when I go today, I still get a thrill and I will go Mark doesn't know why, but I'll go on the worst holidays, sort of forgetting, and be, like, crunched up and waiting and still kind of get a thrill at being at Russ and Daughters. And the quality and what they do is so incredible to me. Um, I love, for I don't know, I love Angelo's on Mulberry for the sort of similar reason that it's a restaurant we always went to as a kid. And I grew up vegetarian. And so we would go to a lot of ethnic sort of things, and we would always have the same meal at Angelo's, which we kind of still have, but it was a stuffed artichoke, caprese salad, and tomato marinara, I mean, uh, angel hair marinara. And it was just like that kind of thing. And again, it was just the waiters were like, again, they were just so nice and, you know, fun. And, And I have to say, this is not from my childhood, but, you know, I have a definite definite passion for I know it's in the it's all over the news right now but for Balthazar because for as long as I can remember my dad and I will go over Christmas just the two of us have a big seafood tower um carafes of muscadet and a pavlova and it's the same every time and so it's it's in my heart because of that yeah you know that's great well that's that's a beautiful um it's a beautiful little list and so I like to uh always ask my guest who I believe is always in the food hall of dames to nominate somebody to to join that august group who would you like to nominate well I would pick Jody Williams um I love Jody you know I have been 
eating her food since... So Jody Williams has oh, a, a restaurant called um, Bubet and also Via Carota. Yes. Yes. And I have been eating her food since Il Buco first opened. And I went into Il Buco and the incredibleness of Il Buco, just the, you know, that it was this antique store that turned into one. And she made fava beans with pecorino, great olive oil, and I mean, the raw fava beans with pecorino, great olive oil, and some sea salt. And I was done. I was sold. <laughs> I'm like, I'm done. You know what I mean? And I have followed her all along. I mean, I've been to restaurants. She was in Brooklyn. I've been to every restaurant. She ever, she's probably surprised to hear me sit there and say this all about her. But I, you know, I just think she's amazing. And what I also think the reason she deserves it is because the minute you walk into her places, it's in every single bit. It's the fork and what's the what uniforms they're wearing. And it just permeates through everything. And I also think she cooks, especially at Via Carota, I mean, for her whole Italian thing, mm-hmm. how people really want to eat. You know, it's she's not reinventing the wheel, but I, I don't know. It's just so, for me, that's her. I think one of the great things about Via Carota is it has everything from fabulous pasta to, like, the perfect leafy salad, like a, a, a butter lettuce salad that's an Alice Waters, you know, recipe, if you want to call it that, the, the dressing. She's got fantastic vegetables, you know, beautiful meats, and it's a restaurant that's spacious and filled with people and energy, but it never feels like you can't hear yourself think or, you know, it's so trendy you never want to go back. It's such a great restaurant, and she's she's a great cook and I think also a great restaurateur. So I think it's so nice that you chose um, a restaurant a restaurateur. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you, Vicky, for joining me on Speaking Broadly. Thank you, David Tadshore, my amazing engineer today. Uh, if people want to follow you, Vicky, I know you're, I follow you on Instagram. What is your Instagram handle? It's Victoria underscore Freeman. And you can find me at FW Scout or Speaking Broadly. I'd love to hear from you if there's anything that you um, would like to hear more of on the show. Uh, you can find it on Stitcher or iTunes or HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Have a great week. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.